0: Mom and hello, friends. My name is Lily Ella Piper, and I'm so glad you're making time to join us here on Uproot. It has been strange days the last few months, as the entire world has slowed down in response to the coronavirus and COVID-19. Really difficult days for so many communities around the world. Really for everybody. Everybody has been touched by this pandemic, and I had a whole slate of shows to come to you in the month of March. Um, but in response to what's happening globally, I really wanted to slow down and think again what what might best serve my listeners. And so for the next few shows, I'm going to be focusing on coronavirus, but hopefully finding ways to help you build more resilience, joy, and justice, even in the midst of a global pandemic. So I'm really honored and grateful that my good friend, Dr. Michael Chung, is joining me today to help us build resilience so that we have facts, facts about the virus, facts about that will help us keep ourselves and our communities safe, and I am just so glad that he is here. Dr. Chung is a board-certified physician in both infectious disease and internal medicine. He is the chair and the professor at the Department of Medicine here at the Aga Khan University in Nairobi, as well as an affiliate professor of the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington in Seattle. Dr. Chung is the founder and executive director of the Treatment, Research, and Expert Education Program at the University of Washington, whose mission and vision I just love, and I want to read it to you, what they are doing. They are trying to create world-class academic health care to be available in every corner of the globe in order to improve the health of patients in resource-limited settings through research, academic training, and compassionate care. Dr. Chung got his medical degree from the University of Washington and completed his residency and fellowship or internship, pardon me, at the Harvard Medical, uh, Harvard medical School and at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. In addition to that, Dr. Chang, in his spare time, decided to get a master's of public health at the Harvard University School of Public Health. He and his family are Nairobi locals. They have lived here for 18 years, and he has an incredible family who have been really good friends to Ben and I and our kids. So, Uproot, you're in for a treat today as we welcome Dr. Michael Chung. Dr. Chung, welcome to Uproot.
1: Thank you, Lily. Uh, Great to join you, and thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, I'm so delighted. I know you are incredibly busy. And listeners, this is actually the second time we're recording this because I lost the first file. And he is <laughs> not only a great doctor, but a good friend. So thank you, thank you for coming back to the show. Yes. So let's start at just the beginning. The name of the virus has, I've read it differently in different sources uh, coronavirus, I've read um, uh, the novel virus, I've read, you know, COVID 19. Can you just give us a quick brief primer, what the difference is in all the names that we're reading?
1: Yes, I think um, the the name of the virus uh, uh, comes from the family of viruses uh, of coronavirus, which is now what... people are trying to describe this virus as because it's related to other viruses like SARS and like MERS that we may have heard of before, or even like the common cold, that all come from this uh, uh, family of viruses. uh, And that's why they called it coronavirus. And corona itself means uh, wreath or crown uh, because it has a crown of protein spikes on the top of it And that's now why they give it this family name. But because there's many other viruses underneath this family name, it's been now confusing now what name to call it because coronavirus now means many other viruses as well. So there's actually uh, between the WHO and there's an International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses have gotten together and tried to name it. So actually, the official name of it is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, And the actual disease that one gets from infected from that virus is COVID-19 you know, saying SARS-CoV-2 is a little bit of a mouthful, so we say the COVID-19 virus, Uh, but specifically it's called SARS-CoV-2, and that's uh, how it's being named now.
0: Great. Okay, thanks for that. That clarification is really helpful. So one of the questions I hear so many people thinking about is, can a person pass on the virus even if they themselves never got sick? They never, you know, developed a temperature or the cough that we're reading about. Can they still pass on the virus, or does that just mean that they actually never were carriers?
1: Yeah, so that's why it's, uh and so this, uh, it's a very good question. It's a very important question. It's something that the, the data is changing day by day. So, you know, as of today, March 31st, you know, what we're seeing is more evidence that, uh, you know, even if you're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, uh, you may be having the virus in a way that it is possible for people to get infected. So there is that evidence out there. Now, at the same time, most people are saying, look, you know, you're really going to get infected only if you're symptomatic. So only if you're really coughing or you're sneezing, Uh, this is now the time when you're most infectious by far. And that's when we're really worried as healthcare professionals, and also as the general public to really now identify those people and isolate those people who have those symptoms. But yes, I think there's growing concern um, in the scientific community that uh, uh, the contagiousness of this virus may be from people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So, you know, people are now trying to now Uh, take more precautions to say, okay, we should be careful about this situation and how we should uh, protect ourselves. But this is now why a lot of the recommendations is to keep social distancing or physical distancing of really one to two meters or six feet apart from other people so that even if they don't look symptomatic, you know, you can still stay apart from them. You're washing your hands regularly and all the time so that uh, you're not uh, getting infected yourself. But this is a major concern. Uh, this is a growing concern. It's probably not a, a strong, significant contributor to the epidemic, but it's something that I think we can't ignore.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the different groups of people and how they're responding to the virus. I've had a couple of questions from listeners ahead of this interview who wanted to know a few things. So let me give you a few categories and maybe you can give us just a a quick, I know the medicine is complex, but maybe you can give us a simple way to understand it. Can kids develop COVID-19? and then secondly Mm -hmm. it seems like in the last week we're seeing a little bit more evidence that my age group middle-aged people 20 something to 40 something are not necessarily you know free from risk as kind of the earlier messaging was more around older people so could you talk about those two groups of people and give us maybe the latest of what we understand
1: yeah so i mean Uh, So definitely what we're seeing is that uh, people can get infected with the COVID-19 virus at younger age groups. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, it is less likely, particularly if you're under 20 or less than 10, that you get infected. And we're definitely not seeing a lot of morbidity in these age groups, but it does happen. Um, And unfortunately, there are some very sick cases that have arisen from that and even a few deaths. So it is something that we're worried about in children, but it's not the main driver of the epidemic or in terms of morbidity and mortality that we think is there um, for many different reasons. Um, and it's true, too, You know, the main people who've been dying from the disease are in the older age groups. Uh, people older than 50, particularly those older than 70, have a much higher case fatality rate. That being said, um, definitely what we're seeing too is that people at these younger age groups, you know, less than 50 or between ages 20 to 40s are getting infected and they are getting very sick too. So it's not like they're completely free from this. Still within those age groups, we're seeing um, morbidity that's uh, 10 times higher than what you see with the normal Mm. virus. So it's not something that one can ignore. So is there less symptomatology? Is there less death? Yes, there's there's less than the older age groups, but uh, it is significant. It's definitely much higher than the regular flu. And it's something that, you know, if you get infected and you're, you're carrying it and you're giving it to other people, you know, you definitely don't want to be bis- visiting your grandparents or your yeah. sick uncle mm-hmm. or anybody else because you'll be now transmitting that virus. So I think it's something that all of us now have to take the necessary precautions for, not for only yeah. ourselves, but definitely for the people around us
0: yeah thank you for that I think staying up to date with what we know to be true is so important in our yes. first phone call I was telling you how I was getting lots okay. of different messaging on whatsapp you know uh, cures and take garlic and take this and take that and I think the more we have the facts hopefully that will reflect in our behavior and will really stick to these guidelines of physical distancing and social distancing okay so related to that um, Mm-hmm. In the last week, my husband and I have been talking about the difference in outcomes for men versus women. It seems like men are getting sicker and having different kind of outcomes. Can you explain why that is?
1: Yeah, it's it's not clear, but you're right. I think what we're seeing in uh, countries uh, at first, we thought maybe this is just China, but we are seeing this in Italy. We're seeing this in Spain. We're seeing this in other countries. Where men are getting sicker and dying. They have a higher mortality rate than women. Mm-hmm. And why this is so, it's, it's still not clear yet. Um, you know, the hypothesis that's there is that, you know, men are more likely to smoke uh, in some mm-hmm. of these countries. They're much more um, smokers among mm-hmm. men than women. They also, have a tendency to have higher risks for cardiovascular disease, uh, for diabetes, cool. for other lung diseases. So tend to be that you know men particularly older men are sicker have more comorbidities than women and this is probably uh, affecting them negatively. Um, okay. What we're not seeing necessarily is that they're being infected more than women. It, in places like Korea, for example, we actually see that the majority of infections are happening among women. Uh, but one of the reasons maybe it's not uh, you don't have a high mortality rate in Korea is because um, it's infecting mainly young women. And so the youth and maybe the gender uh, has an impact on that. Uh, so we're not sure. You know, Is it comorbidities related to male behavior? Uh, is it also that they don't take care of themselves very well or they're seeking health care at the last minute like uh, we men tend to do? That may be a part of it as well. And lastly, it maybe it's autoimmune. You know, we do know that there are immune differences between men and women women tend to get more autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, thyroid disease. And is this now playing a role in terms of why men are being more affected than women? So we don't know yet. It's an interesting uh, exploration for us as scientists.
0: Well, one thing I'm taking away from what you said though, is that that idea of just um, culturally or gender wise, if we don't seek medical care, we tend to ignore our health. This is not the time to do that, that we should be paying attention to how we're feeling. If there's any changes, and be Definitely. aware of that, yeah, no matter who we are, just to pay attention to our symptoms day to day.
1: Yeah, this is not a, a, a time to be macho and be manly right. about it and say, you know, oh, you know, I can I can, I can, can get through this and uh, I'll be yeah. fine. Because part of it, too, what we're seeing is, you know, some of these patients they are coming in and we're uh, measuring their pulse oximeter, which is a measurement of oxygen in their blood. And we're saying, oh, my goodness, it's really low. But they themselves may not feel symptomatic. They're not short mm-hmm. of breath necessarily. And so that's very dangerous. And so... Yeah, we don't want to have men yeah. feel like, oh, I'm I'm feeling really good, so I don't need to be checked out. This is yeah. this is something that you requires medical attention, uh, at least at the beginning.
0: Um, can I ask you? Do we know how this virus is treating asthmatics, or if it's presenting differently on asthmatics? I had a question about that, and I have kids who have asthma as well, and was wondering would it look different on them? You know what I mean? Like I'm, we're paying sure. attention to their, do they have temperatures? Are they coughing? But because mm-hmm. they're asthmatic, would it present differently?
1: Uh, it's an interesting question. You know the. What we're seeing with COVID-19 virus is it's really causing a pneumonia, so uh, something that is an infection of the lungs. So we're still now seeing the lungs uh, really get damaged by this, and really now seeing uh, like a dry cough that comes not just from the upper respiratory uh, system, but really from the lower respiratory system. So it's a it's a different. um, So it won't change the symptom presentation in that sense. It's still typically a dry cough. It's still typically a fever that's there and, and fatigue that's there. But what may be happening different in asthmatics is, you know, anything like a trigger, uh, as you may know, whether it's cold or whether it's food or even when, especially when it's an infection can cause an asthmatic to feel more short of breath and more wheezy. And this is now definitely one of those things which can, uh, do that and exacerbate asthmatic symptoms. So what you might see then in an asthmatic who gets infected is not only the fever, not only the cough, but now, uh, you know, more asthma attacks, uh, more okay. increasing exacerbation, and more wheeziness. This is now what can happen. So yes, in that sense, they will be more wheezy than the typical patient who doesn't have asthma. Uh, mm-hmm. You won't have that strider, but in an asthmatic, it'll probably exacerbate uh, that underlying condition as well.
0: Okay. So again, just paying attention to those in our families who may have those chronic um, illnesses and how their body might respond might, might look a little bit different and just paying attention again. Exactly. And, and hopefully uh, the, the slowdown while we all appreciate the heaviness of the economic impact, hopefully it's also allowing us to be more in tune with our loved ones and with our families yes. so that we can pay attention to it, those changes that might might be occurring. Yes. I think something that's at the top of so many people's minds is, what do we know about the virus's ability to mutate and the rates of mm-hmm. reinfection? You know, can I, if I get it right. once, can I get it again? Is it like the mm-hmm. chicken pox? Am I gonna be immune forever if I get it and recover? What do we know about that so far?
1: Yeah, so another great question, and it's a million-dollar question for us scientists and doctors to understand, um, because what we don't want to happen is that, oh, I've got uh, COVID, and oh, my goodness, I can get reinfected. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news so far is it does seem to be like the SARS virus before it and the MERS virus before it, which we know with those viruses, yes, uh, you do build up an immunity to it. Yes, you do develop antibodies that do appear to be protective. How long, how Along that is protective for is still an outstanding question, but it looks like it can be protective for some amount of time. So the evidence is now showing us that we are hopeful um, that, uh, yes, you're going to build up an immune response. It's less likely that you're going to be reinfected. And the other evidence that's coming out from that is also the fact that some people who are recovering from the uh, COVID-19 infection are now being used to now help treat other people. So their plasma That's is right. being obtained. And now we're trying to now say, oh, you've developed antibodies. Maybe let's put those antibodies in people who are now suffering from the disease and see whether it can help. And so those trials are ongoing even now. So again, as of today on March 31st, you know there are some promising results, but it's definitely, uh, you don't have firm results to say it definitely helps, but it looks like it's going in the right direction.
0: Okay. And I I hope now that, you know, the world, I think here in Kenya, we're now just at the early stages. God willing, it won't grow that bad. But as we can look at Wuhan and see that they have more data, more time since the first onset, I guess we have a little bit, we understand a bit more about reinfection, hopefully at this point, right? There's at least, I'm sure the whole world scientific community is looking at where it started and seeing our people retesting positive. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't don't really have a question. I think I'm just commiserating and talking with you, feeling comfort that I can have this conversation with you because I think that's part of what feels because we are physically distancing from one another. I think then that that isolation can also feel intellectual at times too. So. Well,
1: well, the good thing for Kenya, and this is how I feel, you know, as an American trained doctor living in Kenya is, you know, we've been able to buy ourselves time and really look abroad and say, okay, this is what happened in China. This is how they handled it. This is what happened in Korea. This is how they handle it. This is what's happening in Italy and Spain, and this is maybe not the way to handle it necessarily, or this is the danger we face. And now we're looking at America, too. So, you know, what's good and what's scary is that we can look to those results, look at how they handled it, look what they did and didn't do and try to adapt accordingly. And I think this is now why we've seen the Kenyan government take such an aggressive approach to really restricting international flights, really restricting travel, putting in curfews, doing all those things which, you know, America didn't do for the longest time. And I think they're really paying for it now. But we're like, you know what, we, we, don't even, we can't even afford for that curve to, to get high before flattening it. We have yeah. to flatten it from the very beginning. Yeah. And so hopefully we are learning from them in a very positive way so that if and when this is coming, we're going to be able to tackle it head on and to keep it at bay.
0: That's really encouraging, I think, for all of us to hear that. Yeah, that we, we had a chance to learn and they took advantage of that, which is great. Michael, what are you hearing from your colleagues in Seattle? Are they seeing any kind of relief now? They were the epicenter for a moment. I think that title has oh, been yes. passed to maybe New York now. But are yes. they? See, what are they seeing in Seattle at this point? Do you know?
1: Uh, it's a good question. So, you know, definitely uh, two weeks ago, uh, it was really hot and hectic for them. I was just seeing a lot of emails of people just trying to get the emergency response team in place, trying to get a command control structure in place, trying to bring in doctors to actually uh, uh, meet the needs of the patient volumes that were hitting them. And so, uh, you know, at the University of Washington, uh, which I'm attached to, you know, there was all this uh, just movement um, and many emails also coming, you know, from the public health state public health department, you know, stating what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Uh, so now at this stage, I feel like what I'm sensing is that they have a handle on it. They're on top of it. They're, they know what's expected. They know what's coming. And they're moving along with that flow. And also what we're seeing in Seattle is, you know, they started to institute this, um, you know, staying at home, you know, social distancing, washing hands, really closing down shops and restaurants so that, you know, people were not mingling. And I think the benefits are being seen now, you know, a couple of weeks later that it's starting to calm down a little bit. Now, I, it doesn't seem like we've hit the peak yet, but it isn't definitely the exponential growth that was there, you know, a couple of weeks ago where everybody's like tearing their hair out, just really afraid of the next day. It seems to be flattening out a little bit, uh, which is very promising. So it's, I, I'm, I'm seeing less emails and less conversation and discussion which I think feels feels um, more reassuring uh, for people on the ground there.
0: So listeners, wherever you are in the world, please keep washing your hands and keep staying at home. I think yes. even as we see this, You know, things start to stabilize. The only way it stays stable, if we continue these measures, that we should not get overly confident and start moving around. We should continue to really observe uh, for the health of our community. So I'm glad to hear that they are feeling some relief, and I hope that the rest of us will continue to learn from our neighbors uh, across the world. Let's, I think, maybe shift gears and talk a little bit about some of – the measures that have been put in place and how people are coping and how they're trying to prevent. So there was a Washington Post article that came out that said the CDC mm-hmm. is reconsidering how they feel about masks and the use of masks. Yes, Dr. Chan, help us out here. I think this is probably another million dollar question. I don't know, but it feels yes. confusing to understand what we should be doing. Regarding
1: masks, uh, Yes, so it is really confusing and I'm glad this is now why we have had a second chance to talk to each other because the science is changing daily and the policies and protocols are changing daily. Um, you know, right now, you know, the WHO and CDC is saying, you know, you don't really need to use masks in public. We need to use them in places like healthcare facilities where we know there's a risk and we need to use them with people who have suspected COVID or have known COVID. Um, that being said, both in the public sphere and in the healthcare realm, we're starting to see a shift of people saying, "Look, there seems to be a risk here with asymptomatic or presymptomatic people. How do we protect ourselves accordingly?" But also knowing that we have a shortage of masks out there, you know, how do we make sure that the people who need them the most, which is now um, healthcare workers, are actually getting protected from masks? So where are we at now? You know, it's what I'm seeing uh, in America as well as here in Kenya people really starting to say, look, you know, in the distant past too, we used to use cloth masks. You know, we didn't have the surgical masks that were, you know, so fancy and made in industry. You know, we made them ourselves. Um, you know, why don't we go back to that? And I think you're starting to see people start to move in that direction of saying, look, um, the risk is probably small from asymptomatic people. If you keep social distancing, you should be able to protect yourselves. But if you're in, you know, why not wear a mask? It probably doesn't hurt, as long as you're wearing a mask and you're keeping it clean, uh, and you're aware of it, and still washing your hands. You know, still not touching your face. It may be helpful. You know, particularly in crowded areas. And as we know here in Kenya, you know, a lot of people live very close to each other, uh, and that's something that you know you may not have a choice uh, but to be sharing that space with someone or being in a matatu with someone. So, can masks help? Maybe, probably, uh, we're seeing that, uh, maybe we should be going in that direction. Definitely in places like Asia, everyone's wearing masks. It's yeah. part of a cultural phenomenon there to do that. It's not so much in America. So I think in the West, you're kind of like going, oh, well, maybe we should be doing that though. So, mm-hmm. so we'll okay. see in the coming days and the weeks, but uh, I think you're starting to see the, more people feel like, look, if you can get masks, if you can wear masks, you know, go ahead and wear them, especially if yeah. you're symptomatic.
0: And and when we think about masks that might just be very simple in nature, made from local materials, they kind of serve the same purpose as maybe a mask that you would get for painting or to avoid dust. Same kind of principle applies there. Just basically a way to keep spit and and kind of respiratory droplets. Is that the technical term?
1: Yeah. Um, so so that it's the droplets. And so that's one thing that we have to be a little bit uh, careful of, you know, not all masks are created equal, you know, they're not necessarily all the same. And so definitely surgical masks, you know, they go through their own Q&A, their quality assurance to say, okay, this will now serve that function for doctors in the medical community. So we have to be somewhat careful too. you know, that not necessarily any bandana or scarf is going to be the same as something like that. So, you know, with the quality of the masks, you know, the layering of it, you know, how much it covers the face. All these things are probably very important um, factors in how protective that mask might be. So I don't know that it's something that we would say healthcare workers should use, for example, right. or that we would say, you know, uh, this mask is definitely going to help you. Um, but I think in the sense that we want to open the doors and say, look, let's move in this direction. I think that's positive. Okay. Hopefully there'll be more science out there to tell us, okay, what kind of mask should we make and what is the best type of mask to wear?
0: Okay, great. So I think for what I'm understanding you to say is that if you're the average person, you're forced into a place where you're gonna to have to be around people, mm-hmm. wearing a mask is not a bad consideration. If you are wanting to donate to a medical facility, that's a different kind of mask and would have its own kind of they would they have their own um acquisition of those masks and so we should probably get in touch with medical workers before we think a donation is actually going to be useful. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I think that's helpful to hear just last week when we talked, it was was different. Yeah. So what about just taking vitamin C, taking zinc, sitting outside in the sun to get vitamin D? Michael, are any of those things, sorry, Dr. Chung. I'm so used to (laughs) my friend, Michael. Now I have to give you a bit more respect.
1: (laughs) Dr. Mike, Dr. Mike. Dr. Mike, there we go, Dr. Mike.
0: Um, So, What about those things? You know, we're trying to make our kids take some vitamin C and get out in the sun every day. Both it's good mentally, but also just wondering, is that going to help boost our immunity at all? Mm -hmm.
1: So I know there's a lot going out there, you know, in social media and the internet uh, about how to uh, help one's immunity. And it kind of reminds me of the time early on in the HIV epidemic, you know, we had a lot of um, uh, herbal medicines out there. And, And the same emphasis on vitamins was there as well, just because I think, you know, we were Desperate, and we weren't sure what would help us, and we wanted to find something. Um, so, I think, you know, what we can say, there's no strong scientific evidence to say, okay, any of these things really help. And what okay. we do know is, you know, keep healthy by eating good food, eat your fruits and vegetables, you know, get sunlight, go out, get exercise. You know, these are good things. If you have diabetes, keep your sugars under control, do all the healthy things that we know will make a difference, and that will help definitely Um, but you know taking necessarily vitamin c or zinc we don't really know that that helps Uh, and there could be side effects from taking some of these you know Medications in excess, like zinc. Okay. Okay. So I think the the basic message that most of us doctors are saying is, look, just, just keep your continue healthy lifestyle. Don't eat a lot of junk food. You know, stay away from a lot of sugars and carbonated drinks. You know, and, and uh, drink your juices and yeah. eat whole foods.
0: But this is how we are coping, Michael. We are coping through sugar and wine. So I need another prescription for my health. But anyway, yes. your point is well taken. Stay healthy. Eat well. Move around every day as much as you can. And there's so many good resources in terms of exercise online now I mean mm-hmm. it's incredible what you can find um, for yes. your kids and, and for yourself
1: mm-hmm.
0: let me ask you my I've got teenagers at home as you know you know mm-hmm. them well and they are kind of holding on to hope that there's something called an isolation cell that they can engage in in time so the idea we read somewhere that if us and our family have stayed inside for two weeks and have not had any external contact have not gone to the grocery store have not you know, done anything, we maybe walked around outside, but we haven't had any contact with anyone. And then another family friend has done the same thing, that potentially after two weeks of no symptoms, that these two families could now start to socialize a bit, keeping the social distancing, but perhaps could sit six feet away at a park or something like that and spend time together. Is this kind of bad science or... Tell me. i I mean it,
1: it makes sense you know as much as now you are keeping among yourselves in a physical you know environment that is not reintroducing virus in any way, and you're safe that way, and you've proven that oh for fourteen days you know you have an island onto yourself that uh, has not shown that uh, anybody's infected, nobody's contagious, the virus is not sitting around on any table or desk or anything like this and the other families the same way, uh, yeah, that makes sense that you could be able to hang out with together uh, and, uh, and feel safe together. And I think, you know, there are literally those uh, islands, you know, around the world that are safe in that way because they just don't have introduction. And that's the same way, I think, as a country, Kenya is just limiting that international travel. But once you get someone, you know, from that group going out to, okay, I'm just going to go shopping one day, you know, mm-hmm. out to the market they may be reintroducing something. So that becomes an okay. unknown factor in all of that. So okay. yes, if you can maintain that uh, isolation cell uh, you know, 24 uh, seven, as, as long as you have that in place, that's fine. But as soon as someone breaks out of that, uh, there is okay. that potential then for reintroduction of the virus.
0: Okay, and so that breaking out would include going to the grocery store or p- possibly even getting food delivery in that someone's delivered food in. Is that also kind of breaking that barrier of isolation?
1: You know, so that's a good question. I know there's a lot of uh, concern raised by people. You know, what, what does it mean to, you know, get delivery of, of, of medications or food? You know, does that really hurt? And so I, again, you know, in those instances, the danger that's most there is not the food itself or the packaging necessarily. It's the contact with the delivery person. So it's, if the delivery person can stay six feet away, if you're not shaking hands with the delivery person, you know, if they're not, um, you know, coughing or symptomatic in front of you, uh, that's safe. You know, they put the bag down, they walk away, you come, and you pick up the bag, you know, that would be the best way to do it. So it's the human okay. human contact yeah. that is most dangerous. So, you know, if people want to wash the packaging or clean it, I mean, that's fine. It, it probably doesn't hurt. But it's there's really no evidence that it really helps necessarily. And that's not the typical recommendation that's out there. Okay. But I could say, like, if you went out to a grocery store, you mm-hmm. know, you know, the food is one thing that You know, but I don't think that's the issue, but it's like holding on to that cart and moving that around. Now, someone else may have held on to that cart and we know the virus can stay on that plastic or that steel for several days. That's where it gets dangerous, right? So that's where now you really want to religiously wash your hands. Or you're carrying the cart and that uh, the shopping bag or the basket, and then that can now carry the virus, you know, because someone else Mm -hmm. has handled it outside or now you're dealing with the, the shopkeeper and you're paying for that money and that person is close to you. So that's where you now want to take more care. Um, yeah. But yes, those instances can now cause, you know, a possible transmission of virus.
0: And it seems to be, I think in our last conversation you mentioned, this is also what makes the coronavirus so much worse than the flu is that it's so highly contagious. I mean, yes. that is just, yes. it's just so easy to pick it up and it lives yes. for such a long time on these surfaces that are so common. I mean, grocery shopping will <laughs> never be the same again. I think and we get through this, we will never look at a grocery cart the same way. You
1: know? Yeah, or, I, well, I don't think we'll look at socializing in the same yeah, way either. True. I think uh, it, it'll be a very different world when we come out of this, um, yeah. but you're right. I mean, the, the, that's another message is that the COVID virus, you know, compared to the regular flu and even the cold is a lot more contagious for sure. Like, you know, two times more contagious, at least yeah. it seems. Okay. And, the, and the mortality rate, it seems to be maybe mm. at least 10 times higher, you know, mm. at least. So it's definitely one of those things where it's a bad combination. It's the infectious diseases doctor's worst nightmare, you know, in terms of, what can be contagious and and what can cause a lot of sickness.
0: Yeah well and I'm very aware that I'm really holding your time so I'm going to try and move quickly here to kind of my last few questions. Um, The cabinet secretary for health um, Mutahi Kagwe this week or yesterday said that basically now here in Kenya we know the virus is here that the community spread is beginning. We are living with the virus and all the very good efforts to to keep it out, you know, they did, probably did save us probably many, many more instances. But now we are thinking about community spread. And I think as we think about that, we're also thinking about what do you do if you start showing symptoms? How can you care for yourself? So I'd like to just spend our last few minutes thinking about that, Michael. And I think it's important for people to understand if you develop some of these symptoms, the cough, the fever, how do you take care of yourself at home?
1: So... First, you know, if you're having uh, a cough and you're having a high fever, um, you know, I think these are now situations where, you know, you want to be checked out or you want to make sure you, you know, are are getting uh, ruled out for COVID if you can. So what the recommendation is today, you know, with the Ministry of Health is that you, you call uh, their hotline number, and they will direct you you know, to a facility that has the testing and has the facilities to help you out. Uh, so then you know where to go, you know where to get tested, because the testing, again, is what's going to help us the most. So I think what I want to put out there is the testing will help you. you know, We now know it's community spread and will help the public and us to know, okay, who has COVID okay. and how can we help you and isolate you and make sure you're better. So um, what we don't want to have do is people just hiding away and not really uh, getting out there. We need to actually know this and we need to help you in that sense. Now, what the the Ministry of Health and the facility, and I say is, you know, you're actually okay. You may have COVID, we'll rule you out, but you can probably take care of yourself at home. And that's another big message here is that, you know, the vast majority of people are going to do fine. They're going to feel crappy you know, for a couple of weeks, but 80% of people will have just mild symptoms and they'll resolve on their own. So what's happening now is people are saying, look, you can probably go home and take care of yourself at home as long as you now can isolate yourself from other people. So the main danger right. there is now spreading it to family or friends or roommates that are in the same um, compound. So can you get your own room? You know, Can you get a caregiver that can give you the food that can feed you so that you don't have to go out shopping for yourself? Right. Uh, that's, I think, the main uh, question there, because it's sort of like the regular flu in that sense. It feels worse from what I'm hearing, um, but it's something where you stay well hydrated, you stay well fed, you take uh, paracetamol or acetaminophen for the fever, uh, and you're going to get through it. And for the pain, you'll get through it. Um, but you need to have that facility where you know you can be by yourself and you're not spreading it to other people. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen as we move forward in this pandemic for Kenya. Will we continue try to trying to isolate people at home to treat themselves at home. Because what has happened in places like China and Korea is they've created field hospitals where even if it's a mild system symptom, they don't want to send you home to take care of yourself. They want you Mm -hmm. actually isolated in that field hospital where, you know what, you're going to get better. You don't need oxygen, but you know what, it'll isolate you and prevent wider spread. So is that something that Kenny can do? Uh, It's something that we may need to explore if this gets much worse.
0: So for our friends who are not in Kenya listening to this, I know we have family members across the globe who actually were traveling right before it became declared a pandemic, who exhibited symptoms. And I think the advice they were getting was stay at home, you know, just because they don't have the tests available in a lot of places now. One thing I've heard, I don't know if this is true, that you should avoid ibuprofen and really try Mm -hmm. and, and and so stay on paracetamol and, and, um, what was
1: the other one you said? Uh, acetaminophen and paracetamol acetaminophen. is the same okay. as Tylenol. Same so as yeah, I with- think what we're seeing is that, um, you know, uh, um, ibuprofen is the same thing as NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, and with the SARS uh, virus before it, uh, when we are using those drugs, uh, it didn't. It, people seem to have gotten worse. So yes, I think if you're going to break a fever, use Tylenol, use Tylenol. Um, this drug, don't, uh, don't use the ibuprofens uh, and the Advils of the world. Um, So that's correct advice. Now to get to also your point about testing. So that is a key issue here, you know, and it's, and for us in Kenya too, do we have enough tests, enough tests to test you? So, you know, what, we are seeing in the scientific community is, you know what, we want to get testing out there as much as possible. We want to test and get to know if you are positive so we can isolate you appropriately. Um, but you're right that in parts of America, in Seattle included, you know, people were saying, you know what, just stay at home and take care of yourself because we don't have the test to test. We don't have enough test kits out there. And that's okay, but that's probably not ideal. Um, and so we probably need to get to a point where we are testing you, um, even if you're sick and you think you have COVID. Okay. Um, but uh, but yes, the, the, the messaging is going to change, you know, depending on how widespread the epidemic is, how much community spread there is, and how much testing is available and how much facilities are available to be able to isolate people, you know, outside okay. their home.
0: And listeners will definitely link in the description of this episode, where in Kenya you can call because there are hotlines set up Um, at several facilities to make sure that you get the information like you said, time-sensitive, it might change tomorrow. Yes. Um, locally, too, I just want to clarify, I think that Panadol is our version here, right, of Tylenol? Yes. Michael, is that yes. correct? Yeah, yes. okay. Just so mm-hmm. that I know it would be different depending on when, when people are listening. So yes. is there a clear marker? If you are kind of taking care of yourself at home, maybe you've got a bit of a cough, a bit of a fever, but you're you're comfortable relatively. At mm-hmm. what point when your system's symptoms change do you know, okay, I need to get medical care, this has gone beyond Right. You know, I, I'm sure we all have that pain threshold. It might different, my right. pain threshold might be different than yours. So what is that crucial point as a physician that you're thinking, okay, now I, I would want to see this person?
1: You know, I think that uh, a couple of things. One is definitely this being a pneumonia and an infection of the lungs. You know, we want to get to you before, you know, you are too short of breath uh, that we can't help you. So if you need oxygen, we have oxygen for you in the hospitals. We can get you oxygen. So... Being short of breath uh, is, is a key indicator. So you, you, you have to be able to feel like you can breathe on your own. You're getting enough oxygen and, you, and, and and that's key, number one. Two, if you're coughing and now you're coughing up blood or the cough is not going away and the cough is with that shortness of breath, you know, this, this severe symptomatology is also indicative of more severe disease um, and a more severe pneumonia. And we want to get to you, want to give you the oxygen and maybe possibly have to intubate you and breathe for you if we have to. Thirdly is, you know, having a high fever that doesn't break. You know, you're just having a fever and it's just not getting any better. And you're having it difficult to getting out of bed. Maybe you're getting too dizzy getting out of the bed. Maybe you're not able to, you know, move around. So those are warning signs that, you know what, this infection is taking hold of uh, large parts of your body. Uh, We need to control that. We need to sort of stabilize you in other ways. And that gets to the fourth point, too, is, you know, for all of these things, you need to have a caregiver. And you need to have someone who's around to actually help oversee that if you're getting too sick, you should be, you know, they can give you food, they can give you water, they can give you the medicines you need. And, you know, if they're not around, then they can take you to the hospital because not having a caregiver around is also a very dangerous sign. If you have a caregiver who's like, oh, I have to go to work today. And so I can't keep an eye on you. That's not good either. And that's Mm -hmm. also uh, can result in uh, severe um, uh, morbidity and death even.
0: Yeah, I was talking to some loved ones who are single and live alone. And, you know, in, in light of this idea that, you know, what if something happens to me and I'm not Someone's not around. And I've seen people there developing WhatsApp groups just to check in with friends every day, every morning, just doing a health check. How are you doing? And I think that's a small way that all of us who are not single can check in on those loved ones who are single or a grandmother who might be living alone or a cousin or whomever just to just check in every day. I think as much as we are physical distancing, I think that social emotional connection is still really important in this time
1: it's very important. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, is, you know, some people getting sick pretty quickly. So it mm-hmm. just seems to be doing well. They're doing well. And all of a sudden they, they turn a corner, especially if yes. they're older. So yeah, that type of check-in is going to be key here uh, to make sure that we, they get help at the right time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So don't go to their houses, but friends, we can definitely check in yes. on our loved ones and other ways through, uh-huh. through technology. Um, a patient once i think we i think you you referenced this at the beginning in terms of being asymptomatic but let's say you you've had covid-19 you've recovered
1: mm-hmm.
0: how much for how much longer of time are you still contagious am i a risk to somebody
1: that's yes. another million dollar question so we're still trying to figure that out uh, and uh, but i think right now there's there's two guidances one is that you can get tested for covid-19 so you can actually have the same test and if that test, which tests the amount of viruses there is low, you know, that's one way to say that you're clear. Because um, definitely what we're seeing in some people is that after a certain point, you know, they've cleared the virus, but what's going on is the immune system is just fighting mm-hmm. uh, what was there. And that's what's causing you to get sick. Uh, so one is testing. The other way is to say, and this is now CDC guidelines, is that, you know, you should at least be seven days out from the onset of symptoms. Okay. Uh, and... 3 days out from the resolution of those symptoms so whichever is longest or some combination okay. of that okay so great. so basically you know at least 3 days after the resolution complete resolution of symptoms and now 7 days after the initial symptoms is what we're saying is the safe window to say that people are not contagious
0: Great, thank you. That, that's helpful and clear. So thank you for that. I know I said I only had a few more questions and I am trying to make good on my promise. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll maybe end up with just with two last questions. One, are there any hopeful developments that you as a physician, as a researcher, as a scientist are looking at and seeing the data that's making you feel hopeful about our next several months of, of coping with the coronavirus and COVID-19? Uh,
1: good question. So You know, frankly, I think what's giving me most hope um, is that idea that, you know, the quarantining that's happening, um, the social distancing that's happening, the sort of closing down of people getting together and making them stay in their homes. That's making a difference. Right. So we are seeing that flatten that curve and making a difference in places like America. What's also promising is seeing, you know, the success of places like China and Korea and saying, okay, how did they do that? You know, oh, they put up field hospitals to isolate people even with mild systems. Oh, they really, Tra- tracked and traced everybody to really find out their contacts and make sure that, you know, we're following up on them and testing them. You know, that we're actually, you know, by testing as many people as we can, both from a medical point of view and a public health point of view, we're really making a difference in, in identifying people and then uh, dealing with it quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's these public health interventions really that are, in my mind, making the biggest difference. And we're seeing, you know, if you're active, proactive, um, and aggressive from the very beginning and doing these things, uh, you're going to be able to make a difference. You're going to be able to get less people sick. Um, I think your question is also about, you know, the individual and the treatment. And, yeah. uh, you know, again, for that, uh, it's, it's, I, we are moving towards now using hydroxychloroquine, um, which is used for malaria uh, as a drug. But I think it's important to know that, you know, This is not something that has been proven to be effective. We're kind of in this quasi-desperate stage of saying, you know what, this looks like it may have uh, some effect in the test tubes. Uh, There's one small trial in France that may suggest it could be shortening uh, the disease uh, course somewhat, so let's try it. So we're all trying it. But there's, but I. it wouldn't surprise me if a week now, you know, the clinical trial said, you know what, this doesn't show any difference. Yeah. You need a randomized control trial really to show us whether that makes a difference. So in the meantime, we're throwing the book at it. We're doing a lot of clinical trials. We're throwing a lot of drugs at this. We're even testing vaccines now. But nothing, frankly, is really on the horizon for this uh, as saying, OK, this is the uh, magic bullet that will cure the disease. Um, we're hopeful, but it's it's probably going to take time.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think I'm glad you mentioned hydroxychloroquine because, as somebody who has dear friends with, living with lupus, I think mm-hmm. the public health message also is do not go and stockpile this drug. There are right. people who need it every day, and it's a very selfish way to approach this. And when it does, if it does become a treatment plan, I'm sure there will yes. be an pr- appropriate response that will be recommended.
1: For sure. And, then, and even then, you know, hydroxychloroquine has its own side effects, you know, and right. it can severely affect the heart. And I think there has been news media reports of people like making their own concoction and killing themselves as a result, which is very sad. Uh, but it's just no, to know that, you know, these drugs are not without their own effects. So one should be very careful of them. Um, so stockpiling is definitely not going to make a difference. And there's definitely not the data to show that uh, this really helps. And we need yeah. to get it to the people who really need it.
0: Great. Well, I could have talked to you for several more hours, but I'm so grateful for your time. I know many people are requiring your expertise and your help and once we get through this I'm gonna make you the best Ethiopian meal and coffee <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> I don't I want to wait until we
1: get through this because that may take too long. So I know, okay how do I how do I make this happen? Social distancing guys. After we I know we'll just maybe we can do some <laughs> delivery or something like this. We'll figure out a plan
0: I, I will figure okay. out a plan. But thank you so much, Dr. Chung for your time okay. and to all of our health workers and your colleagues who are fighting so hard to keep us healthy. Thank you so much.
1: And thank you, Lily. Thank you for the okay. opportunity. Talk to bye
0: you bye. soon. bye Thank you for tuning in, everyone, today. I hope that you took something from Dr. Chang's information and that you will continue to keep yourself as healthy and safe as possible. Wash your hands. Stay at home. It is the least that all of us can do to keep ourselves and our community safe. I'm going to try and shout out organizations every episode that are doing this work of keeping people safe and fed in Nairobi environs. The first one I want to mention today is Shofco, Shining Hope for Communities. They have been working in Kibera and Mathare for years, and in response to the coronavirus, have set up ways to contribute to these communities, both health and medical supplies. Sorry, food and medical supplies. You can find them on Instagram very easily at Shofco, S H O F C O, also online, shofco.org. You can find all the information and you can contribute on their webpage with credit card, with M-PESA, many ways to give. They are well-established, well-regarded, well-respected, and I really encourage you to check them out. Well, listeners, let me know what you thought of today's episode. You can send me a message on Instagram at Salam and Hello. That's a new handle, Salam S-E-L-A-M, and Hello. I had to merge my personal and podcast accounts. It was just too much. So they're one account now at Salam and Hello on Instagram. Facebook is the same as always at Uproot the Podcast. And on Twitter, I'm probably going to change that one too. But for now, it's at Uproot the Podcast. You can send me a message there or email me, Uproot at gmail.com. Stay well, stay healthy, friends. And in this time where, you know, things are not certain, stay at peace, stay calm. We are in this together. Okay, stay at it. Keep at it until it gets rooted, until we come out of this well and healthy. Saying a prayer for each and every one of you, and I hope to talk soon. Bye.